0: This is Ye Old Dragons Library, the storytelling podcast. Here in season three, we're featuring the steampunk series, Guardians of the Time Stream. This is a chapter from the prequel story, Odessa Fremont. Ready for fun with fantastical fiction? Then let's begin. Chapter 15. I don't envy you one lick, Jasper said, and shuddered with exaggeration. Then she grinned. I am as clumsy as they come. When it comes to bareback riding, granted, the Countess said, you have your family's sharpshooting skills and cleverness with numbers, and unfortunately your devil-may-care attitude. Got the unholy luck to go with it, to keep my head on my shoulders, she retorted, leaning back in her folding chair and hooking her thumbs through her suspenders in a pose of bravado. Anyone who trusts to luck is a fool, the woman said, without any change in her slowly elegant tones. S. saw a spark of something in the Countess's eyes, though, that made her think she was either irritated with Jasper's attitude or feared for her. I know, the girl said, lowering her voice and losing a few degrees of the cocky grin. Got the family smarts to keep my skin whole. Just gotta remember to use them. Indeed you do. Speaking of family smarts, she tipped her head back, gesturing with her chin at the serving line. S. turned to look and saw McGillicuddy, the chief cook, stepping out from behind the long, steam-heated tables with a tray. Off to work. Jasper scooped up her dishes and held out her hands for S.'s and the Countess's as well. In moments, she had deposited their plates and mugs and utensils in the dishwashing bins, that had a continual stream of steaming water flowing through them. S. thought that entirely clever, and hurried to take the tray from McGillicuddy. Then she hurried out of the cook tent, calling out greetings to the clumps of circus performers coming in for breakfast. "'What does Jasper do?' S. asked. "'He's Stockwell's assistant. Runs errands, carries messages, learns the business, the bookkeeping work and such, and, unfortunately, will soon be joining the trick-shooting team.' both in the ring and in the sideshow exhibitions. The Countess shuddered delicately. Come along. You need to be fitted for your harness and riding shoes before training starts. Your afternoons and evenings will be spent with Gus, tinkering and making noise and keeping the steam at the perfect pressure for all the toys needed for the performances. S. waited until they were out in the open, and no one was close enough to overhear them before she asked her next question. "'What kind of trouble is Jasper in that she has to hide out here?' "'Family trouble,' the Countess responded with only a second or two of hesitation. She had an enviable talent for speaking without moving her lips, her voice clear, yet so soft S thought no one standing more than two feet away could have heard her. Stockwell is her grandfather. His enemies from the war weren't satisfied with believing he had been killed. They went after the whole family.' "'Resurrectionists are my enemies, too.' She had to resort to pretending to rub at her mouth to hide the movement of her lips. S. resolved to learn the Countess's trick. It would come in handy in situations where she wouldn't want people to read her lips and understand what she was saying when they couldn't hear her. After all, if she proved herself useful and trustworthy, Sutter might move her on to bigger, more active, dangerous assignments." S. started her training with a few advantages, the first being that she liked horses and rode bareback quite often as a child. Her brother had been an adventurer, and as their grandmother often accused, had a goal of breaking all his bones before he became a man. S. had insisted on following in her big brother's footsteps, to the point of disdaining a saddle, except when she needed to appear in public and in skirts. She had held on to her bareback skills, despite the equestrian training of the academy, which insisted that true ladies rarely rode faster than an elegant, dancing walk around the park. While the academy did win dozens of ribbons for equestrian skills, most of them were for the horse's conformity to standards of breeding, gait, and what the riding masters called equestrian dance. S. decided she could handle this part of her duties quite well and have fun at it, until Roscoe Fletcher, the riding master, told her to stand up on her horse's back. When she hesitated, while the big gray gelding glumped around the training ring, the skeletal black man flicked the end of his long training whip pole at her. She flinched and twisted out of the way, nearly falling off, while the gelding didn't even flick an ear. S. held on to the mane as she contorted, trying to get to her knees. She couldn't seem to ignore that whip tip that hung two feet over her head as the horse completed another circuit of the ring. That made finding her balance and levering herself to her feet even harder than if she had tried it without anyone watching her. Halfway to a standing position, with her knees and back bent and a few strands of mane sticking to her sweaty fingers, S felt her center of gravity shift. Holding her breath, refusing to let out a yelp for help, she froze. Gut instinct said quick movements would only make things worse. Gut instinct didn't factor in the horse's continuing, jolting, jerky steps in that awkward place between trotting and galloping. One foot lost contact with the horse's back, despite the nubby leather sole of the riding shoe that Roscoe had promised would grip the horse's hide better than glue. Everything slowed as if mired in molasses in winter. S. twisted, jolted by another horse step, an image of sliding down those heaving flanks and going under, to be trampled by those big black shod hoofs, made her heart race. Think, think, think! she snarled silently in her head, still refusing to make a sound and entertain anyone who might be watching. Roughhousing housing memories with Yuli came to the fore, and her body remembered, despite the years. Essa's foot came back down, sideways on the horse's flank. She kicked pushing off hard with that foot to guide her angle, and shoved with the other leg, twisting herself in mid-air. She curled into a ball, hitting the sawdust of the ring with her shoulder and rolling twice to sprawl out on her back, the air knocked out of her. Applause somehow penetrated the hammering of her heart in her ears as she struggled to remember how to breathe. Very good, Roscoe bellowed, taking his own sweet time to cross the ring. He held out his hand to help her up, but only after S. had sat up and remembered how to breathe. Knowing how to fall without getting hurt is half the battle in learning trick riding. Willie, me lad,' he said, with a fake Irish accent. He turned and gestured to one of the older men who stood on the sidelines, tending to the horses. "'The harness, if you please.' At first, S. couldn't figure out what the tangle of leather straps and buckles hanging from the rope on the long pivot arm was for— Then, as Willie and two other men brought the long pole and settled it into a metal tube set into the center of the ring and attached the pivot arm to it, she caught on. Astonishment warred with relief when she understood, but both feelings were overtaken by anger. "'Why did you make me try standing up without it?' she demanded, as she responded to Roscoe's imperious gesture and approached him in the center of the ring. "'Fear is a better teacher than hours of lecture,' He was so calmly matter-of-fact in his explanation, she thought she could hate him. It would have been better if he had been amused, as if he had been pulling a trick on her. Besides, I needed to see if you knew how to fall, or if I'd have to waste a couple days teaching you that before we got you in the harness and moved on to having fun. He winked at her. Fun! She snorted and turned around, raising her arms to let him adjust the straps of the harness that would keep her in the air whenever she slid or fell or as she later did a few times, bounced off the horse's back. S. hated admitting he was right. There was something almost amusing about losing her balance and suddenly finding herself swinging in a wide arc on the end of the rope. When she had time to think later, grateful for the steady supply of hot water that eased some of her bruises and aches, there were similarities between Roscoe's teaching style and her grandfather's. Ernest Fremont liked to hand his grandchildren massive books, or give them a vague assignment to research something, and then set them free to read and find their own answers. They could write down all the questions they wanted on whatever subject he had given them to study, but they were to try to find the answers for themselves. Roscoe had a tendency to give instructions, but few explanations, until after S. had learned enough, through repeated, aching, clumsy, embarrassing, failure, After nearly an hour of private lessons, bumping and bouncing and falling and twisting, and managing to stay on her feet for two complete circuits of the ring, the equestrian team came into the tent for rehearsal. S. was sent up a pole to sit on one of the acrobat perches and watch. "'Will I have to copy everything I see tomorrow?' she asked, as she snapped off a salute. Roscoe's responding laughter was deep and lazy, with malicious undertones that didn't fool her for a moment." The next two weeks were essentially a repeat of her first morning in the ring, learning to stand on horseback until the team came in to rehearse, then sitting in various spots, giving her different perspectives, while she watched them rehearse and work out new tumbling tricks. After four days, Roscoe took the supporting harness away, and S. learned how much she had come to depend on it to keep her from going under the horse's hooves. She only fell off the horse five times, and agreed that learning how to fall was the largest part of the lessons. After that, once she could find her balance and keep it no matter how the horse changed his gait, Roscoe started her on tricks. When she could hop from one foot to the other, leaping up high in the air and kicking her legs wide apart in between, and then stand on her hands on the horse's back, then Roscoe graduated her to working with the team. She had to learn Perdita's role perfectly, after all, and only had six weeks in which to do it. Afternoons with Gus usually ran between the extremes of silent contemplation of the various parts of the steam engine and frantic, greasy, sweaty activity during performances. S started out as one of the stokers, hauling buckets of coal and pumping water into the boiler. Then she kept busy getting her hands caught constantly, as couplings were shifted for one mechanical trick after another. If the clowns weren't getting ready to race around the ring in their steam-powered carts, the ladder for the fireman clowns had to be raised and lowered by steam, so that it seemed to have a life of its own. Gus gave S. two pairs of gloves and thick canvas and leather coveralls just for performance times, because each performance resulted in getting thoroughly soaked and near scalded by the steam from the pipes and unscrewing connectors. She had a third set of gloves and coveralls for the lulls between performances. Then she either followed him around, and he explained what he was doing to repair the latest breakdown, or she tried her hand at diagnosing a mechanical problem on her own. Between dinner and the evening performance, S. became the countess's assistant and errand runner. She helped the woman set up for her magic act, and learned various tricks just through putting props in their places, and then watching the countess run through them. Dampness in the air, or heat, or dust, could affect how sensitive pieces of equipment performed, so they had to be checked every day. The countess commended S. for her sharp eyes, and the sensitivity and dexterity of her hands. She promised that when they had some leisure time, riding the train to their next performance venue, she would teach S. sleight-of-hand tricks with cards and coins and scarves and useful skills, such as picking locks. S. looked forward to that. We've come to a break in the story. I'd like to take a moment to tell you about a book that you might be interested in reading. Do you hear howls when you see a full moon? What do you really know about the Wolfman? He could be a victim rather than a monster. He could be lonely, in pain, trying to find a way home. He could be the boy next door. He could be you. Explore new variations on the Wolfman in Moonlight and Claws, Classic Monsters Anthology Number One, from Ye Old Dragon Books. Moonlight and Claws is in paper and ebook. He'll never look at the wolfman the same way again. And now, back to the story. At first, S. was so busy she forgot why she was at the circus. Then the weight of guilt and sense of uselessness smothered her when she remembered. Sutter wanted her powers of observation and analysis, watching for trouble sneaking up on Stockwell. Knowing the circus owner was Jasper's grandfather put a little extra weight on the assignment, because S. genuinely liked her fellow impostor. She had even more reason to protect Stockwell, because she knew how it was to feel like everyone in the world had been taken away from her. First her parents, when she was almost too young to remember them, then Eulie. then her grandparents, then Giles and the rest of the household staff. Her sense of uselessness faded as S. settled into her new life. Stockwell was everywhere. She wondered that she hadn't heard the wheeze creak of his mechanical leg more often, because he wandered the entire circus grounds from sunup to sundown. She saw him a dozen times a day, watching the acrobats rehearse or checking with Gus on the engine and progress on new ideas for performance tricks and traps. When she didn't see Stockwell striding from one place to another, dealing with minor crises or vendors or town officials... S. could see Jasper acting as her grandfather's second pair of legs, carrying messages or fetching something he needed or making deliveries. As long as Jasper was running, in a good mood, then Stockwell was safe and all was well with the circus. As an added benefit, when the girls settled in to sleep, Jasper chatted about what she saw and heard and what her grandfather had done of note during the day. S. liked the quiet time at night. After the lantern was blown out and she and Jasper lay in their bunks, talking quietly until they fell asleep, both of them exhausted from their rapid pace during the day. She had never really had a friend to chatter with, though she had certainly had friends at her grandparents' church and then at the academy. She learned anything she wanted about circus life from Jasper. In return, S. talked about her grandparents and Eulie her grandmother's scientific experiments and inventions, and her grandfather's scholarly and philosophical friends. Jasper was fascinated by the clockwork rewinder Matilda had made and the chemicals that let one paper be copied perfectly onto another. Discussions of the patterns of history, the high tides of creativity versus the low tides of oppression of thought and spirit, didn't interest her much. The only thing S. didn't like about sharing quarters with Jasper was that Durgan showed up at least once a day, glowering at her as if she was in his way. Plus, he came up in the conversation at least twice a day. Every other night, Jasper was delayed returning to their little wagon because she met with Durgan to whisper and kiss and talk about whatever minor crisis had threatened the circus that day and plans for a future together. How old are you? S. had to ask, the first time Jasper confessed that they had kissed four times the night before, blushed and went into wriggling raptures lying on her bunk. "'I'll be eighteen in December. I'm more than old enough to know my own mind.' Jasper wrinkled her nose up at her, then a moment later relaxed back into her delighted grin. S. bit her lip to keep from retorting with words her grandmother had used for a girl in their church who thought she was in love. "'Yes, but how can you know his mind?' She had an awful suspicion what Durgan had in mind, if he knew Jasper was Stockwell's granddaughter and most likely his heir. Jasper and Durgan's romance was none of her business, but if the big, glowering man had designs on owning the circus someday, then that could be considered a threat to Stockwell, especially if Durgan manipulated Jasper and broke her heart along the way. S. resolved then to include Durgan's name and his relationship with Jasper in her first report to Sutter. The circus was headed for Detroit, once they finished up their two-week run in Indianapolis, and there was a Secret Service office and an airship docking tower office building in the center of the city, where it lay in relation to the fairgrounds where the circus would set up. S had no idea. She would simply have to find out. Hopefully it wouldn't be too far away, because she did have duties that took up most of her time. As their assigned assistants... S. and Jasper rode in the front car with Stockwell and the Countess as the train pulled out of Indianapolis two hours before dawn after their final performance. Both girls curled up on the thick couches of the car that served as office and living quarters for Stockwell and went right to sleep. The girls cooked breakfast in the little kitchen in Stockwell's office car. While the Countess and Jasper took care of cleaning up, Stockwell took S. aside for the first private conversation they had since he fetched her from the train station. He emphasized that she not let slip to anyone that she had been sent by Sutter. The story was that an old army friend had sent her, to hide from creditors and people with old grudges to settle. The Countess settled Jasper and S. at one end of the car, while the supervisors of different divisions within the circus came up to the car to meet with Stockwell to handle circus business. While men discussed numbers and costs and damages and risks, the girls learned magic. S. delighted in the sleight-of-hand tricks, and especially in how easily she caught on to them. She would make an admirable and successful pickpocket, if she should ever have need, according to the Countess. The first day in Detroit, S. took a detour during an errand through the city to visit the Secret Service office and deliver her first report for Sutter. The agent at the desk barely looked up when she walked in and handed him the sealed envelope. He did look up, though, after seeing the name and the sequence of numbers that Sutter told her to put on all correspondence with him. She assumed the numbers were a code and guaranteed delivery straight to him. The big, battle-scarred man looked uncomfortable in his neat, pressed suit and his expression clearly said he couldn't understand what a young boy, in a slouch cap and oversized jacket, could be sending to a Secret Service agent in Washington. S. supposed that his entirely too-readable face—his inability to hide his emotions or thoughts—was exactly why he was assigned to a desk, and not out in the field or even working in disguise. A man who gave away what he thought or felt was predictable in his actions and reactions. He could never have the advantage over criminals. She hurried through the rest of her errands, because she was to meet Jasper when she finished. She found a telegraph office and sent a message to Detective Horace Winslow at the Philadelphia Pinkerton office, asking for a report using the password that proved she was indeed Mrs. Flora Lewis. The telegraph office operator very kindly agreed to let S. use his office for delivery of the response, if there was anything to report. Two days later, S. returned to the telegraph office and found a message waiting, simply saying, You vanished after original ruckus. S.A. Hotter, No details. Sighing, she thanked the man in the office. She would wait two more months and try again, when she knew the circus would be in a town long enough for her to receive a report through the mail. The entire situation was discouraging enough that she didn't enjoy her duties behind stage during the afternoon performance. Gus even remarked on her seeming rather sulky, and that frightened S a little. The inventor-engineer was a brilliant man and a fascinating teacher, but oblivious for the most part when it came to people around him. For him to notice S's low spirits meant she was far too obvious. Being obvious, and being distracted by her disappointments, could end up being dangerous for her. Two months later, the circus performed in Philadelphia. S. borrowed a widow costume from the Countess. Her mentor did not ask why she wanted to use the clothes, and she visited the Pinkerton officer personally as Mrs. Flora Lewis. Detective Winslow wasn't present, but her password convinced the man on duty to open the files and give S. a report. So far, the Pinkertons had tracked down four of the men Ulysses Fremont had argued with just before he vanished. All of them were hangers-on, bystanders, not really involved in the original argument. All of them agreed that the men who accosted her brother had accused him of either taking something that didn't belong to him or of being where he didn't belong. S. couldn't believe her brother would ever steal. However, she could believe that he would poke and prod and sneak in and spy where he had no business. They had both been raised to be curious and to follow their curiosity. That testimony was all the Pinkertons had been able to scrape up so far. They noted that people in town found it odd that the men who started the ruckus were all outsiders and seemed intent on harassing one of their own, as one of the witnesses put it. As for her grandparents, a series of telegrams to diplomatic offices and shipping lines and a representative of the airship courier line in the United States had yielded discouraging news. Tensions had escalated all through the regions of South America, where her grandparents had planned to travel during their two-year expedition. All access to the mountains where her grandparents had vanished had been cut off. After three attacks on the Courier airships, the company had decided to suspend all operations until they were assured of safer conditions. Late November... The circus traveled through Virginia, heading for warmer winter venues in Georgia and Florida, and heading for Texas. S. had dared to confide in Jasper about the academy, making her friend laugh as she described the various teachers. They were given an entire morning of freedom from their duties. S., because the acrobats couldn't practice, as one horse had turned up lame and another was too far gone with a foal to perform and the girls hurried off to hire a gig and visit the town where the Academy's students did their shopping. S. was disappointed, when the only difference in the town after all this time was that the streets were muddy from constant rain. She supposed the change was mostly in her, rather than the countryside. She was surprised to see a long covered wagon full of students come into town. Miss Van Hastings had never allowed the girls to go outside in inclement weather, It wasn't the fear of rich parents being upset that their daughter had developed a cold. Rather, the housekeeping staff didn't like mud on the floors or having to wash and dry student cloaks after going out in the rain. What had changed at the academy? That was definitely the wagon. The false family crest Miss Van Hastings took such pride in was clearly visible on the wagon. We're already at the end of today's chapter. I hope you enjoyed yourself and you're eagerly looking forward to the next episode of Ye Old Dragons Library.